0: bought my first two businesses two-in-one deal in April of last year 2022 and so I've been doing it professionally for a year and a half and I actually went on a bit of a like an acquisition spree so those two were followed by a roofing company which is followed by a manufacturing business choose to do what you want what you want with
1: who you want with who you want when you want when you want with another episode today now here's your host brian lubin (laughs) james richardson the business buying brit what is up how are you i'm
0: great brian yeah how are you today
1: Man, I am doing awesome. I'm really excited to dive into this episode with you, man, because I'm really interested in your story. I'm really interested in your subject matter because we've all heard about businesses and we've all heard about the opportunity that's coming up, the silver tsunami. It's going to be the largest wealth transfer in, I think, human history when all these baby boomers retire and they want to give up their businesses. They're either going to sell the businesses, shut them down, or transfer them. So it's the best wealth building opportunity, I think, since after the financial crash of 2008. So I'll allow you to introduce yourself to the people. Who is James Richardson?
0: Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I go online as the Business Buying Brit or at Biz Buying Brit. I left my career, I was working in the world of finance, actually turnaround and restructuring to be specific. That's actually what brought me to America. I moved to America in 2015. I was meant to be on loan from London to New York for two years and go home. But I met my wife in New York, who's awesome. So it, I stayed around and never left. But basically, that was my career for 12 and a half years. And as a career goes, I enjoyed it. But I was at that stage in my career where it was like, I either stay and it's like a law firm. It's do you, do you go for the partnership or do you not? Mm-hmm. And I knew that if I did that, my heart would never be in it. And ultimately, I wanted ultimately to buy businesses. So I've got all this experience working in like the M&A space, or distressed MA space but i wanted to do something smaller businesses something you can get your arms around and try and build a portfolio of small businesses for myself so i had this now or never moment at the beginning of 2022 where i was like if i don't do it now i know that i won't do it you know i have got a young family now like i'm a provider i, f- I feel that weight and so i was like i've got to do it i've got to do it and my wife very supportive I made the scary leap and bought my first two businesses two-in-one deal in April of last year, 2022. And so I've been doing it professionally for a year and a half. And I actually went on a bit of a like an acquisition spree. So those two were followed by a roofing company, which is followed by a manufacturing business. And now I'm at a place where I'm actually helping other people do it as well as also actively buying more businesses for myself. So it was it's been a great leap. That's just a little bit about me. I know we're going to jump a bit more into maybe the history and backstory, but that's what I'm doing now. And uh, yeah, super passionate about this area. So thanks for having me on. So today, what's the business valuation
1: that you have in your portfolio? And how do you even value that? So I know for like real estate, you can you have an asset value. So in businesses, you can value them in different ways, different multiples based off of different metrics. So what do you value your current portfolio at?
0: That's a good question. I try to be more conservative uh, because as you aggregate businesses, they actually become more valuable because they're less risky for the end acquirer. And a lot of people buy businesses to sell. I am currently buying to hold and I have no intentions of selling. But it's true that if I just take, say, my roofing business and then add one of my other businesses together, they are more valuable because they're more diversified and and they're also larger as well. So the EBITDA or the earnings number is higher. And we're I'm hoping we do 15 million in annual revenue this year. That was my target for 2023. But in terms of valuation, I, I don't normally share this stuff, but it, it's okay it, to not. We, it's we've, okay cer- to not we've certainly grown it. Yeah. From the, per- from the point where we bought each business, they've grown nicely. And so I'm super excited about the, about the path of growth in front of us.
1: We could just say 15 million top line. That's still sick. Okay. Let's do that. Yeah. Let's, let's do say 15 that. million top line. Awesome, man. That's fantastic. I and mean, that's across how many businesses Four, you said?
0: Yeah, so we technically it's we've done three transactions. I do have some smaller minority shares and some things, but in terms of the actual acquisitions that I've put together, so it was two in one first, so two companies in one transaction, then uh, a second transaction, a third transaction, so three transactions, four companies, and they're not all in Nashville as well, where I'm located. I wanted to start there, and now I've started to branch out a bit. So the last one was in Alabama. That's awesome, man. So I want to go
1: into definitely the nuts and bolts of the business acquisition process. Like you and I spoke about before, we've had Walker Diable, John Warlow, guys that have wrote the books on business buy-in and business acquisition on the show. And Walker's a good buddy of mine now. So I want to go first into a very interesting topic briefly about vision. So you were working this six-figure corporate job in M&A finance, and you had this dream of financial freedom. And a lot of people will set this vision and sometimes they'll set it really small because they don't quite yet know how they're going to accomplish it. But what I really like to punctuate for people is the way that you end up doing it is most likely not going to be anywhere near close to the way that you previously thought. And that's what your story really resonates with. So I'd like you to share your exit story with the audience because you didn't start buying businesses. What did you start out with?
0: No. So if I rewind back to when I was living in London, in my friendship group at the time, there was like me and one other friend who we were interested in real estate. And I would say the rest of our friendship group were not. So we had after a lot of talking, we decided that if we scraped all of our income and all of our savings together, we could just about scrape onto the the property ladder, as we call it there. And so I think I had the I think I had the income and he had more of the savings, but what, whatever the mix is, we managed to put it together. And this was a decade ago now. And we managed to buy a two-bed apartment in an up-and-coming part of London. And you can read between the lines, up-and-coming. It's, you won't necessarily walk around late at night in that area. But what we did, we I know in America it's common because you go through college and things like that to, to share rooms. But in, in Europe, it's more on the weird side to share rooms with your friends. But we decided we don't care. So we actually shared a room so we could rent out the second bedroom on Airbnb. And then it had this like weird floor that hung over the kitchen as well. It's not as fancy as it sounded, but we're actually able to create that as a separate space on Airbnb and rent the living room out and what was my bedroom. And so we then shared a bedroom. And so we just basically did whatever we could to get started. And I remember, vision is a really great point there because at that point in time, we were dreaming like. Oh uh, what could it what could our life look like if we kept on this path? Oh man, we might be able to get a second rental like that would be so cool, maybe we could get three and I was like, "What would my ultimate dream be? And I remember thinking, I might be able to retire when I'm forty, like that would be like unreal, and my net worth might be like like two million dollars or whatever at that point in time and, and things like that and what's amazing is how it's progressed, like what I have now far exceeds. What I was dreaming about, and I'm still in my 30s, I work now and we can talk more about business buying, but I love what I do and I'm super passionate about it. So what I have now is way better than I thought, but what was important at the time was to dream, was to make a vision. And it's amazing, there's that old saying, which is like you overestimate what you can do in one year, but you underestimate what you can do over a large number of years. So I I think my lesson I always try and tell people is just get started. If you're interested in investing, if you're interested in financial freedom, yeah, Maybe start with a rental. If you've got an opportunity in front of you and a good friend that like you really trust, and just get going. And you don't know where you're going to twist and turn. I'm grateful that I had the confidence eventually to tw- uh, pivot slightly and go towards businesses, which is my passion area. But I wouldn't, it wouldn't have been possible for me to leave my job if I didn't have some income coming in from the real estate portfolio that I built at that point in time. Because at this point in time, we're pushing like 40 rental units across short-term rental commercial. We've done some new construction. We've done some burrs. Like we've done like the whole realm of things that people often do in the real estate space. And my model was always just buy, do the value add, and then just keep. And mm-hmm. that has really paid off if I look back over the last decade. And what I really want to pull out of that for people listening is, remember, if
1: you're walking around a food court at a mall, and you don't try any of the food, and you just sit there, and you're so overwhelmed at all the options of food that you don't even try any of the food, that's completely defeated the point of the food court. It's the same thing as speed dating. If you're sitting at a speed dating thing, and you're supposed to go around and talk to everyone, and, you're not, and you get nervous, you don't talk to anybody, you completely defeated the point of the speed dating. So it's the same thing when it comes to b- picking your asset class. It's just like speed dating or a food court. You walk around, you try the free samples, and you see which one you like the best. So you tried the bird, you tried the Airbnb, you tried cuddling with your roommate. And you decided, hey, this is fine is way better for me than this. (laughs) So so
0: let's go into... I like the food court analogy, by the way. I haven't not heard that, but it's true. It's true.
1: So let's go into the transition there. So let's talk about the person that's listening to this that's really looking for cash flow. And they can't figure out how to replace the cash flow. Because right now they're looking at real estate probably and they can't figure out... This is like $200 a month. This is like $500 a month. How can I replace my six figure income with these investments? Now enter business buying. How can that help
0: people hit financial freedom? I think one of the most attractive things about buying businesses is that the return on the amount of money you actually invest can be much higher. I think the last real estate deal I looked at was like 19% cash on cash. And you're a real estate guy. You may tell me that's not so good, but at the time, I was like, "This is all I can juice it to. I can't do any more." And then at the same time, I was still analyzing businesses, and I was like, "Man, this is like a seventy-two percent cash on cash or return on the invested capital." So it, it, you have to learn how to structure it. I would say businesses is much more risky. You're not just buying a hard asset that stays in place. These are you're often just buying people, and service businesses are great to buy. But they're like asset light. And so, in a way, you're buying systems, a brand name, people. It's much more risky. But if you do it correctly, you can take your, your down payment, couple it with seller financing, SBA financing, all these different things, but actually create. Like, I, I know several people that have had over 100% cash on cash from buying a business. And I actually bought, I've done large amounts of seller financing in my deals, like 60 to 100% seller financing. Sometimes we don't put cash down into the deals either but it has to make sense for the seller but you'll be surprised as you get into the space like often it's better for someone who's 60 years old and retiring and trying to move on to the next chapter of their life which is retirement they don't want a large sum of money in one go so i found it easier to do seller financing in the business space versus real estate which then circling back to your point means that often the cash on cash is better because you can structure it that way
1: what other reasons make business buying more attractive than real estate when it comes to pure cash flow? So it's like the way that I see it is, it's just an opportunity zone because of the amount of people and the amount of volume that are with it that's within real estate right now versus the
0: amount that's in business buying. Not many people are talking about it. Yeah, I think so. There's a lot of more levers for growth in a company versus a piece of real estate for sure. And so like I have a well-defined buy box that I run every potential deal through. And one of them is like low hanging fruit. So like things you can grab immediately after you've closed, they'll add value. From what I've seen over the last 18 months, it's actually surprising that a lot of small business owners have not raised prices through COVID and through the pandemic. Like they've probably seen their cost base increase, like cost pressures go up. And yet some of these guys have not raised their prices or at least not intentionally raised their prices where they've done an actual analysis of pay hey, our costs have gone up 10%. So we should raise our you know, price to our customer by 12. That kind of thing. It's just like dollar here, dollar there. So there are lots of levers I'm finding on, the, on that side, like price increases. I know that people talk about, oh, you can buy uh, companies with like fax machines and no websites, but that actually is a thing. And there are lots of businesses I've come across. We've closed on some of them that are in this position. And it's not that you come in and you know better because actually one of the things I teach is Make sure you come in with respect for the person that you're buying the business from. It's a legacy play. These guys have built something amazing off it. The- if you're interested in it, it should be amazing. You don't want to buy a crappy business, but you want to honor the legacy. And so you don't want to come in and just start blowing things up day one, day two. But you need to be thinking, hey, they still use faxes here. This is so antiquated, like this method of doing things. Oh, wow. This is all the way we do like our taxes on QuickBooks, all on paper like they don't just click the button that automatically sends it to the IRS and, and things like that. There's, there are so many levers when you get into it. And I guess over time, you can develop this kind of box of things that you can do once you're an owner of a business. But you're right, there are more levers for sure. So let's talk to
1: the person that is in that job. Maybe they were where you were before they have an Airbnb, maybe they have three Airbnbs, they've got some real estate. And now they're making $200,000 plus per year. And they're saying, hey, this isn't going to cover anything remotely close to what I need to be able to leave this job. So I need to start looking to actively buying some businesses. Can we first start, I want to hit this into a couple of different chapters of the podcast episode, but let's start with establishing your first buy box. So for somebody that's looking to buy their first first business and maybe they've got some real estate, they've got some operational knowledge, what are some good general rules of thumb to what to look for in a business versus what to not look for? And I know that... The answer varies a lot.
0: But if we can just speak
1: in some good rules of thumb.
0: Yeah, for sure. Uh, I would say the first rule would be don't go too small on what you buy. I think it's quite an unknown space. If you haven't been involved in the small business space, you think, oh, man, I could never buy a company that does five million a year in revenue. That is like, that's too stressful to think about. But what people don't realize is if you buy a business that's too small, it actually is a job. You're buying a job. And then you actually end up more stressed than you were in your W-2 because you're not earning anymore, but you carry this additional weight of like, how am I going to make payroll? That kind of stress. And when I was getting going, I almost bought a business that was too small. And I'm very grateful for a friend who had a phone conversation with him. And he was like, man, if you buy this business as your first one, I think you're going to be like, it's too small. And he was 100% right. And we pivoted and and ended up buying a different business. And so I want to pass that on to your listeners today and say, if you're looking at a company that does, I don't know, six or 700K of revenue, maybe, and 200K of earnings, then actually once you buy that business and you then factor in the debt service, you're going to have much, a much lower amount left for you. And then after that, you've still got to consider capital expenditure and your taxes, you'll have to pay out of that as well. So you'll probably be running around with like a chicken with no head trying to make things work. So try to go... For a larger business, that's number one, I'd say. And number two, I would say partnerships are so important. I always tell people that it's really hard to buy your first business. It's actually hardest to buy your first because people don't take you seriously. And you have to do whatever you can to buy that first business. And if that means taking it in a couple bites of the apple and do a partnership, then do it. If you just take 10 20% of a deal and give it to someone who's got a track record, then do that. Because then in you the can confident. It. Yeah, then you can confidently say on deal two, hey, I already own this business and people take you seriously. So it's like playing the game to get that experience somehow, even if you have to give away equity, it is worth it. And also I always say, I would much rather share the journey with someone that I want to be friends with in 20 years. Like I do everything in partnerships now and I'm never going to change that because I don't want to carry all of that risk solo. And then also, if things go well, like you want someone to share that like upside with as well to talk about just not just the downside, but the upside as well. So partnerships is a big deal for me as well.
1: Yeah, and I think that's a great point that you made there with, with the partnerships, because if you're buying a $5 million top line business, we'll say they're doing 5 million top line, 2 million like EBITDA, and it's or even a million in EBITDA. But if you're buying one of those businesses, there's going to be a team that's there, probably that's in place and there's going to be skill sets that are required and there's going to be a balance sheet that's required. So it's, I don't want to give myself a plug, but I'll give myself a plug. That's why we do the Action Academy. Like we got our community and in that community is there's a lot of people that have a lot of money and they're actively looking to buy businesses. So it's, if you're able to bring these people businesses, like they'll gladly partner with you in order to take these down. And a lot of the times, I don't know about you, man, but we're in GoBundance together. How many people are in GoBundance right now alone as just one group that have millions of dollars of cash, operational expertise? They've got the balance sheet to be bankable to, to an SBA organization, and they don't want to do the work to find the deal, right? Like, I could probably name a couple hundred, right? It's
0: so true. When you're not in that space, or when you're not surrounded by those people, you think no one has money out there. But when you get in the right circles, you realize that actually there's a lot of capital out there ready to be deployed for people who bring good deals to the table. That's just the way it is. And I want to hit on the too small comment. So what does too
1: small look like? So let's say somebody's making $200,000 a year or $100,000 a year. Like, What should they, when they hear too small, they're like, okay, so what contextually is too small? So you said like 700000 What's your kind of target revenue buy box?
0: So honestly, I think in terms of like profitability, EBITDA, like earnings, because that is ultimately what matters. But like, it's easier to talk in terms of revenue because people understand it more. So it's hard to give a revenue target, honestly. Let's do profit. Yeah. Like, honestly, if you've got earnings of less than like 300K is probably the lowest I'd go. Under that, I think you're pretty much buying a job. Because if you're looking at a company, brokers like to market SDE, seller's discretionary earnings. And so if you have SDE of 300, then if you're truly buying it as a cash flow investment, you actually want to hire someone to be a company manager. So let's Mm -hmm. say you need to hire someone 80, that takes you 300 to 220. Then you've got a layer on the debt service. And that obviously depends on how you structure it. But if you use an SBA loan, SBA loans based on Prime, and Prime's pretty high right now. So you might be looking at an SBA loan of 11% interest. So take your two twenty out of take out the interest and your principal payments and then you've got to think about tax and any capital expenditure like you're already squeezing that down and if you're a corporate america six-figure guy or girl then you're going to start it's going to be tight for you so you can absolutely achieve financial freedom in one deal i've literally got a friend who just did it like a week or two ago for the first time so pumped for him so you can do it, but it's just you just have to think about it carefully. And I think my I think the one of the big limiting factors is people think too small. Just go slightly larger. Go like five hundred K of earnings. That's a much different spot. I think once you get over a million dollars of earnings, you start to compete with like lower middle market private equity firms who are like competing in that space. So you want to go a little under that five, six, seven hundred K of earnings is perfect in my opinion. Okay, cool. So somebody's got the
1: semblance of a buy box established now. How do we go about finding these businesses? I know we have Biz Buy Sell. We have the broker listed websites. What are some options that you used when you're
0: in your lead flow process? If I take a step back and look at um, how these businesses have come about for me, I'm, I'm a big supporter and uh, encourager for people to get out into the network and talk to people and find tell people you want to buy a business. And my challenge is always i'm foreign i don't have a network in america or i didn't before i I moved here i don't have a home base in america like where i grew up and so most people do and so you're already a head start to where i was and yet if i look at where our deals came from the first one came through a small business owner friend in the local market who knew we're looking for a business so my challenge is have you told your small business owner friends that you're looking to buy a business Second one came from our CPA. So then my challenge is, have you told the third-party professionals that you work with regularly that you're looking to buy a business? And the third one came through a networking event I attended. I just got talking to a guy. He was an independent business consultant, never met before. He called me six weeks, eight weeks later and was like, hey, as a business for sale in my hometown, would you be interested in looking at it? I was like, yes. So again, you've got to go to networking events, get out there, tell people in your network that you're doing this. And I think you'll generally be surprised. Of course, you can build your own lists. Real estate guys do that. Of course, you can speak to brokers, but you want to take advantage of the opportunity that's like right in front of you. And I think everyone has it. They just sometimes don't believe it's there.
1: Yeah, I agree with that. And when I was speaking with Walker, he went all in on brokers. He was just like, okay, brokers are the answer. I like my brokers bring me the best deals before they list them. Here's how you establish broker relations. So
0: you haven't done anything through a broker yet, correct? No. Um, and I like the fact that Walker has that and because that raises a really good point that there's not just one way of doing this. There are different niches you can carve out just like real estate. Yeah, mine has been finding a way to be scrappy just like I was with the real estate back in the day, get a business deal done. And then once you've done a deal, people come to you because actually right now we have a lot of tire kickers in the business buying space. A lot of people say they want to do it and never will. And so because I've got a track record of buying multiple businesses, people now bring me deals. So I guess it's just whatever it takes. If for Walker, it was getting those relationships, then great. That works. It it worked for him. And for me, it was just using my personal relationships, got those done. And so you just got to find what works for you. A bit like what you said with the buffet, right? Back at the beginning, try different techniques and find something that works.
1: Yeah. So I always like breaking things down into how do you win your week, right? Now, when it comes to like multifamily, or when it comes to Airbnb, or when it comes to any bit of real estate, I always think that there's just a couple of key core actions that you can take to where you could say, I won this week. And most of the time, like deal flow is one of the biggest things. So I'm like, what lead generation activities are we taking? How many deals are we underwriting? And how many LOIs are we submitting? And that kind of applies across all of real estate and business. So it goes like lead measure versus lag measure. So what Metrics can you control versus what are the outcomes? So for multifamily, maybe you talk to twenty brokers in a week. You send out five hundred mailers. You analyze twenty deals. You submit five LOIs. Do you have any specific KPIs that we can assign to this? To where somebody that's listening to this says, "Okay, cool. I'm very analytical. Like, what more can I do besides just posting on my Facebook? Hey, I'm looking to buy a business. What do I do if I do that? Nobody replies." What are some actionable things that people can
0: take from this episode? I like the question focusing on leading indicators. I think given that I'm big on the relationship side of the personal relationships first, like you've got to set a metric in terms of number of calls or texts or DMs, whatever to people have you done that week, do it until you've exhausted everyone that you can think of that works with small businesses. And also often it's reach out. And then if you don't hear anything, follow up, like follow up's key. I think if that doesn't work, like I recognize, like you said, with Walker, he's more on the broker side. There's loads of websites like the IBBA websites, which is the business broker website. You can go on and immediately find a list of brokers in your state, your hometown. Speak to every single one. Don't just say, I'll speak to one or two, speak to all of them and just make sure you're consistently reaching out. I think they're great kind of leading indicators of, am I having a good week and am I moving forward towards my goal? It is more frustrating buying a business than a piece of real estate, in my experience, because uh, you could like you can get quite emotionally attached to a business, and you can get halfway through the process yeah. and be like, "Oh, there's red flags here. I know I shouldn't buy this business, but i really want I want this to be my first one." So it's actually harder in a way. You have to be stronger from a mindset perspective to be able to walk away from deals that aren't quite right.
1: We had a buddy. So we got Jordan Barry. So if you're interviewing for your new podcast, Jordan Berry would be fantastic for yours. He does laundromats. So he's the laundromat guy. And he's in my, he's in Action Academies. He was, there's a, a new guy named Alex and he was really excited about this laundromat that he was finally about to get into a contract. He'd been trying and trying cold calling owners, sending mailers, doing door knocks. And he finally found one. And then my buddy Sean and Jordan both commented on his post and goes, this is an hour and a half away from you. And you have no one hired. So you're going to be collecting coins every single weekend for the next two years. Do you want to do that? He goes,
0: ah, yeah. <laughs> Good point. You no,
1: know, I really wanted this deal, though. So that's exactly what you're saying. It's like we mm-hmm. already know sometimes when the deal is not supposed to happen. But we're just so excited to make it happen to say we're, we bought a business that we try to force it through. Right? It's so, <laughs> so true. That's a great point, man. And yeah, I think so. That's a fantastic one. Here's another idea I have that I'd love for you to either validate or shoot down. The way that I'm thinking about it is for me, if I'm looking to buy a small business, what I would do is pick an industry. What I would start with, at least, is maybe picking an industry where I have some type of knowledge in or something that's adjacent to what I currently do. Perfect example of this. I used to work for a uniform company called Centos, right? Mm -hmm. And one of the truck drivers, so they have these box trucks where they drive them out. And uh, what they do is they deliver the uniforms to all these different customers. So in those box trucks, they get dirty. So one of the truck drivers actually ended up buying like a mobile truck washing company adjacent to his job. And he actually signed like the company he was working for as one of his clients to wash all their fleet. That's a pretty like, cool story. I and like that. I'm like, dude, that is stinking cool. Like what a cool way to go adjacent. So the way that I'm thinking of it is maybe if you're in the automotive industry, maybe you go to all these different stores and you ask to talk to the owner just for the sole purpose of, Hey, can I pick your brain on buying businesses? Like I'd like to partner. I want a bird dog for you. I want to go hunt for deals for you. Was there anybody that you'd recommend? Is there anything I could do? Is that something you'd recommend if you have a specific industry in mind?
0: Yeah, I always think, or I always challenge people to think, where do you have an unfair advantage? So that guy, he had an unfair advantage because he worked for that company. He Mm -hmm. saw a need and he was able to fulfill it. So that is exactly what you should be doing. I do think in terms of taking advantage of the opportunity in front of you, sometimes something totally random will come up. Yeah, (laughs) uh, Because there's so many small businesses in this country that you can't possibly fathom like all the different industries. So you've got to stay open-minded. I think you either have to have some like industry knowledge or like an unfair advantage, or just have a desire to learn that industry. Like I wouldn't touch a company where it comes in and I need to have specialist like engineering experience or like, be a doctor or some sort those kind of things. No, that's not for me. But like, if, a, if an opportunity suddenly presents itself and it's a company that does like garage floors, then yeah, I've, be all in on that because I think I could learn that pretty quickly. And I'd probably have a desire to do that if it was a profitable business. So
1: every yes needs to be justified by 99 no's. And when people think of strategy, they think of what am I going to do as opposed to what I'm not going to do and what strategy actually is a set of self-imposed constraints on decision making. So it's like strategy is really what am I saying no to? So James, what makes a terrible business acquisition? what are the red flags
0: for us to look out for? What are the things when you're looking at a business? I saw one not too long ago, which on first glance, I was like, yeah, I'll take a look at that. It's local. I won't say exactly what it did, but all of the employees were all family members. They're all related. <laughs> and so I was like,
1: yeah, there this go. is
0: bad. And they're related to the seller. So the seller was like, oh yeah, trust me. My whole family will stay and work for you. And I was like, "I no way. That is a major red flag. That like literally the whole workforce could just disappear on day one. So sometimes you can't, Necessarily plan these things in advance, but you just have to like analytically look at the situation and just sit on it and be like, what do I feel like? It's not just a thinking game. A lot of people are going to a small business buying a great with numbers, but I always say it's like a feeling game and a thinking game. You have to be able to project the cash flows. But does that feel right that like everyone in the company is related? No, probably not. I don't mm-hmm. think that's a business for me. But, like, there's several other ones I could think of. Like, another big one maybe is if a business could be disrupted easily. I always give the example of I wouldn't have wanted to have bought a taxi firm just before Uber was rolled out. And so there are some industries now where I think, oh, man, like, I don't know for sure. But I think tech might innovate in that space. So I would stay clear of those kind of businesses as well. So there's a few lens I, I think about when I, I look at opportunities. Okay, cool. That makes sense. Anything in particular you can think of when you're looking overlooking
1: the numbers? If you're looking at a p and what are some things that you've noticed where you're like, okay, I don't like this. So you already mentioned one of them. If it's under, if it's under that number of SDE, if it's under what, 700K of SDE or 300K of SDE, you're like, woof, that's a red mm-hmm. flag.
0: I think, I like the question. I think, yes, yeah, size for sure. I think people think that if net income, which is the bottom of the p is positive, great, we've made a profit. But I actually like to recalibrate that and say, you have to really be making a net income of 10%. So anything under that is there's probably a few problems going on in the business. And so if it's, if the gross margin is too low and I can't give like blanket answers because it depends on the industry, what the gross margin should be. Sure. But the gross margin is super important, but it varies company to company. But if the net income's under 10%, I'm like, why is it under 10%? Because out of that, I still have to pay down the debt, for example, and, and things like that. So, and I would never buy a turnaround as a first business as well. That's Sometimes huge. you get brought, I, I like turnarounds because that was my career. But I, even I, with that experience, have not bought turnaround companies to start with. And am I interested in doing that in the future? Yes, if the right opportunity presents itself. But like you do not want to leave your W2, which I, I guess isn't necessarily secure, but perceived security to buy a company that's like failing because you're going to be the savior. Don't take that on. If there's anything
1: to take away from this episode, I think that would be one of the most important things is don't try to be the savior. Buy something that works first. Mm-hmm. Buy something that's good and then use your skill sets to make it great. Don't buy something that's terrible and make it okay. Like That's just a recipe for disaster and you're buying yourself a problem. The odds are already statistically against you staying in the game. So why would you make it harder than it has to be? It's not. I, I think people may be used to that because of real estate. Because they're used to buying like the under market value piece of real estate that needs a lot of work, and they need to do a gut job on it, and then fix it up, and then put it back in the market. People are used to solving problems when it comes to business. That's not necessarily the case. Right? That's a
0: really good point. That's a really good point. That if you're a real estate guy, I bought this distressed property. I immediately day one need to be there, and I'm going to start ripping stuff out, and we're going to rehab the whole thing. Whereas if you have a if in your buy box you have, I only look at businesses that are ten or more years old, then like it's been successful for 10 years. Otherwise, why are you looking at it? So actually, like the first three months, don't do anything. Like Don't come in with an ego. Don't start blowing things up like we we're talking about earlier. Like Actually, take your time and learn from what has made this business a success so far. And then incrementally over time, add your changes and hopefully help it grow further. My buddy Logan, I just had
1: him on my podcast. And he goes, his buddy just bought the $7 million service business. And he's yes, I got it 0% down. Seller finance, we negotiated a great deal. There's 14 people that are working for the company. And he goes, okay, cool. Nothing about this industry. You've never been in a leadership position. You have no idea how to operate this. You have no idea like what the strengths, the weaknesses, the opportunities, the threats are. He's like, what are you going to do now? And he goes, I have no idea. So what's some advice you can give to somebody in this position that maybe they're like, all gung-ho on the acquisition side, but then what if they get everything that they've ever wanted and they get the business?
0: Now what? I think first thing is to establish what your strategy is. Are you like a one and done, like I'm buying a small business and I want to be CEO of that business. And if that's your goal, then that's great. There's nothing wrong with that. Or are you trying to build like a hold co of small businesses where you're actively like hiring a company manager or raising someone up from within that company to run the company? So I'm the latter. I think most would be the latter on the end, yeah. Uh, and so like, um, you need to think about company manager who's going to manage operations ahead of closing for sure. That's a very key part of the early stage analysis all the way through diligence. If that's, if your buddy like doesn't have a plan as he's closing the business, like he's probably going to be in for a stressful period as he like figures out what's going on. Like really you need to have that plan going into day one. Like we, we try and hire company managers in advance. It's not always possible. Sometimes you have to do a hybrid approach where like so one of us manages a business or the seller stays on to manage the business or something while you then hire a new company manager. But we, one of our key components is making sure we have a plan in place so that pretty soon after we have someone new that's running the business for us. So we can operate at the level that I'm much better at, which is designing your scorecards, your KPIs, your leading indicators, tracking the progress of the business, talking strategy, doing budgets and forecasts, but I'm not there Every day, doing the day-to-day stuff. Like, actually, I could hire someone to do that job much better than I could. Do you run EOS for these businesses? I do. I do. Ah,
1: There we go. Yeah, call it Adam Allaway. As (laughs) soon as you said scorecard, I was like, there it is. Okay, so EOS throughout the business. First off, people listening, if you haven't read the book Traction or Rocket Fuel, I think if you're even considering buying a business, both of those are
0: fantastic books. I literally have... I I think mine's here, down here. I literally have it with me.
1: It's all highlighted up and marked up because I use it with my business. And so, this is a really good playbook and systems and structure and process for people that don't know is Traction and Rocket Fuel by Gino Wickman. Okay, cool. So, is there any other rules of thumb that you can give or any other advice that you can give for after the acquisition? Like, what is that next? what does that maybe previous 30 days and maybe that next 90 days after acquisition look like? What's your transition period from getting the keys to being able to get things more stabilized with the current team? We'll just, for the sake of the example, we'll say a current team of maybe a seven to 10.
0: Yeah, I try not to change too much in the first 90 days, but I do put a weekly level 10 meeting in pretty much immediately, which is part of the book that you just held up. So even if I don't really change anything and I'm just sitting in on the existing team members talking about the day-to-day roles and jobs, like I at least bring everyone together for 90 minutes a week to talk about what's great about level 10. It's the same time, same agenda every week. It goes ahead without fail. If someone's on vacation, doesn't matter. It goes ahead. So a great way to structure, like bringing everyone together and it eliminates the need for lots of micro meetings all the way through the week. So definitely do that. I think in the, the timeframe leading up to close, I think unless you've got specific experience in something like financial diligence or legal diligence or insurance, you really need to spend money and uh, get some professionals to look. Actually, I heard a quote the other day, which was like, the people that need financial diligence more than anyone is someone with a background of finance, because, because sometimes there's an ego involved. Says, oh, I know how to do this. It's going to be fine. And so I would say the 30 to 60 days beforehand is the diligence period. And you really want to, you don't need to go super crazy expensive, but my advice is to find on the financial side, a good, like reliable local CPA who will do like a basic diligence package. And then based on the business you're buying, add bits and pieces to the package uh, that would help you feel better about certain risks. And same with legal. That's been a big learning for me as well. Don't skip the legal analysis at all. You have to do legal diligence. Super important. So you need a rock star attorney, like in the state that you're buying the business to do that kind of work for you as well. And then to complete, I guess, the package insurance as well. I didn't give this as much attention as I should have done on the first transaction. But if you are in diligence period, get all of the insurance documents from the business you're buying give it to a a local insurance agent, and they will do a review of every policy. And actually, one of the great places to get savings on in week one is to move from the previous insurance agency to a new insurance agency. I found every single time that we can get better or the same coverage for cheaper every time. So it's a good way to save money in the first week. Cool.
1: Yeah. And then so when you're looking for the operator themselves, so first, key piece of advice is to go ahead and carve that out of the SDE correct and then be able to be like okay cool this is what the owner's paying themselves like what do I need to
0: pay someone in this
1: position to run this for me so walk me through that thought process
0: you can use tools like indeed honestly if you want but often it it depends like here in Nashville it's quite expensive because it's a a booming city a bit like austin but if you're out in the country somewhere it's maybe the cost of living is much lower so it's hard to give a blanket answer i would say but yeah you have to uh, factor in often my preferred way of getting a company manager in is if i buy a business with someone in the business already that is really strong yeah elevate them up to company manager And that's good because you know what they're getting paid currently. So you know what the base is to give them that pay bump for them to take on the additional responsibility. That's the dream scenario for sure. So what's the demeanor look like when you're coming in? So um,
1: my assumption would be you're coming in and it would be like a very shoulder to shoulder approach as opposed to like face to face where you're like, "Okay, hey, guys, I'm taking this over. You guys have been here longer than me. Let's work through this together. Tell me where the opportunities are. Tell me what's wrong. And let's create like a 90-day plan here where we'll see what's going on and then go from there. Is that kind of spot on? Is there? Do you want to add any color to that process?
0: You made a great point there, which is sit down one-on-one with each of the employees and obviously get to know them because you're starting a relationship with them. But ask them where they see the biggest opportunities are in the business because they will probably see stuff that you wouldn't see. And maybe the seller didn't see as well because they've been working the business for several years. So they... Can see where the inefficient processes are like get their knowledge like that is super good valuable insight but then other than that yeah, like relationship is so key like you don't want to come in and not care about people like these are real people real jobs like there is real satisfaction in taking over a company and providing really good jobs for people with great with a great career path because it's yeah i come in with ideas and i know where i want to take each one of my businesses But what's super cool is that I know that's giving a good career to people that work in my organization as well. Yeah, that's amazing. So speaking of
1: relationships, let's talk about the relationship with the seller. So when it comes to real estate, it starts with relationships and everything, especially with seller finance conversations. I think even more so with business, right? Because people are selling for so many different reasons. And unlike real estate, a lot of the time it isn't because it's a giant dumpster fire or the, the roof needs to be repaired. It's for a lot of different emotional reasons. So, can you talk about the emotional conversation with a seller when you're going through this process? Like, what questions are you asking? What are you looking out for? Like, how, what's your probing process and figuring out the core reason why they're actually selling the business, what they're looking to get from the transaction?
0: Yeah, I like buying businesses from retiring sellers. Mm -hmm. People have different strategies, of course, and people buy businesses younger from younger sellers. I like retiring because it gives me an extra sense of security that they are moving on to a new chapter of their life. I would say, despite the fact that they may be moving on to retirement, I still make them sign a non-compete because I think it's really important just in case. But I guess from buying from a retiring business owner, if they say they want to retire, it gives me an extra sense of security that they're not just trying to flip something that is like a dumpster fire. It's, mm-hmm. And if I can see back 10 years that they've done well, and maybe they've done really well through the 08, 09 crisis and COVID, then I know that this business has resiliency. Yeah, I, I look back in time, I obviously speak to the seller, find out what they want to do. And also by talking about what they're going to do next, it helps cement that in their mind as well. Because sometimes you talk to a seller who's, I'm thinking of selling, and then you could say, what are you going to do in your retirement? And they start to imagine that and they, it starts to become more attractive. So it so actually accelerates your journey to actually. Buying that business. But honestly, like it all starts with relationship. Do things over food, coffee, talk about what they want. They may not want a big lump sum of money in one go. They may actually actively prefer, I don't know, 20 payments over time, whatever it is, ask that stuff. And that's when you get the best deals because you get something that works for the buyer, you get something that works for the seller. And it may be something that would never have worked under an SBA financing scenario. Man, that's
1: awesome. So as we come up on time here, we're at the top of the hour. What's some closing pieces of advice that you would give to somebody that's in the process of buying, their, looking for and buying their first business?
0: I would say, don't be afraid. It's linked into that original real estate story we started with, but take action. You don't necessarily know where you're going to be 5, 10 years from now. But if you don't start, like you'll never get to where you want. And where you actually end up may far exceed what your current vision is for your life, but take action. And I think it's scary in the business space. I know it. I've lived it. You have to put LOI offers out. You have to talk with sellers. You have to confidently be able to say, I am buying a business or I want to buy a business and you just got to do it. And the the more you do it, the easier it becomes So just take action. That's what I want to leave your listeners with. Love it, brother. And where can people find you? I am at, I'm the business buying Brit and so on Instagram, it's at bizbuyingbrit. So I'd love people to find me on there and follow my journey. Awesome, man. So this has been awesome. This has been a, an incredible conversation. You just completely
1: lived up your expectations and now I'll see you one of the Go Abundance events. This has been awesome, man. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks, Brian. With that, this has been Brian and James with the Action Academy podcast signing off. Hey, real quick, if you're still listening to today's episode, I'm assuming you got value from it. So I need your help specifically. My two-year vision with this show is to help over 1 million people do what they want, when they want, with who they want. And I can only do that with your help. There are two main ways that a podcast grows. One is through ratings and reviews, and the other is word of mouth. If you could please leave me a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, as well as send this to one or two friends that you think would get value from it, we can reach the people that we're looking to reach. Thanks in advance. Talk tomorrow.